Back in 2020, in the wake of a national reckoning on race, BizNow endeavoured to collect information on the levels of racial and gender diversity among decision makers in the commercial real estate industry. What we found was stark, but not surprising. For example, that year of the biggest real estate company, C-Suites, out of hundreds and hundreds of positions, just 93 roles were filled by people of colour. Since then, BizNow has looked at this issue every year, with our reporters examining the breakdown of the boards to measure just how much change is happening. Last week, we published our fourth instalment. Right now, fewer than 13% of C-suite roles are filled by people of colour, an increase on last year. Female representation went to 26% in the C-suite, up from 25% last year. My name's Miriam Hall. I'm joined on BizNow Reports today by BizNow's Deputy Managing Editor, Ethan Rothstein, who's been editing this series since 2020, and Melina Cordero, who's formerly of CBRE, but who now runs P20, a diversity advisory and training program. So Ethan, let's start with you first. What did you make of the numbers this year? Um, It seems like there were quite a a sizable jump in terms of uh, people of colour. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. We had uh, in the 89 firms that BizNow tracks, these are 89 of the biggest brokerage, capital markets, uh, REITs, and development firms across the country. Uh, in the C-suites of these firms for the highest level of management, uh, in 2023, there are 12.8% of those C-suites are people of color. Uh, that's up from 11.6% last year and 10.9% in 2021. So we've seen continued growth there. Um, on the boards of directors uh, with these companies, uh, people of color now hold uh, 19.6% of board seats. Um, that's up from 18.3% last year and 16% the year before. And actually, the first year we did this uh, study, we didn't track the total size of C-seats. We don't have percentage there, but we do, did track the total size of boards. So from 2020, there were 13.9% of board seats were held by people of color. That's gone up to 19.6%. Uh, you know, over the course of the four years we've been doing this project. So that's a, I think that's a significant jump. You know, if you take kind of a step back, you know, year over year, things don't move so fast. Uh, but, you know, once you take a step back, you can see there's been real progress made um, in the industry. And that's been, you know, up every year, just slightly, you know, that hasn't really been a backsliding overall. Uh, for women uh, at these companies, uh, kind of same story, 26.2% of the C-suites uh, at these 89 companies uh, are women <clears throat> or, and 32% of the board seats. Uh, that's up from 25.5% uh, of C-suites last year and 23.5% of C-suites in 2021 for women. Uh, and in 2022, 29.6% of board seats were held by women and 28.5% of board seats were held by women in 2021. So again, we've gone from 23.5% to 26% in the C-suites over a couple of years. We've gone from 28.5% to 32% terms of board seats at these uh, at these overall at these overall firms. So again, steady progress. And in terms of what's jumped out to me, I mean we hear a lot about how tough it is in commercial real estate, you know, these days. And you know, there's a lot of concern, and I think rightfully so, about um, you know, backsliding these metrics, but certainly at the biggest companies, right, which is what we're tracking, um, you know, that hasn't really borne out in the numbers, you know, to this point. So it certainly looks like there's steady progress. I know last year we were talking a lot about how there seemed to be a bit of a slowdown, but it looks like it is trending up over a course of over a course of three years or so. Yeah, and I think that's that's natural and to be expected, right? You know, we're evaluating C suites, we're evaluating the top of these companies. Um, you know, so these positions don't change out, 
you know, very often. So, you know, I think the, you know, the longer we go on, you know, the more we can see the change kind of happening at these levels. Um, and so, yeah, it's steady progress, but, you know, it is progress. And I think, you know, getting to the point where it's 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 almost 13% of C-suites, it's not a lot, right? You know, that still means that 87% of these C-suites are, uh, are white. Um, so I think that's important to note that we are seeing progress, but um, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to what would be true representation, right, in terms of the makeup of this com- uh, country. Same thing with women, right? Women now hold 26% of these C-suites, it should really be 50, you know, if everything was it w- was equal. So um, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of ways to go, uh, but yeah, we're definitely seeing incremental progress, um, kind of towards more uh, more equity, you know, and more um, you know to be more reflective of of the country uh, that the real estate industry is representing. So Melina, let's come over to you. The, these numbers are a snapshot of. The, the biggest companies basically in the industry. You work with companies of all sizes. So anecdotally, what 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 have you seen, particularly when you talk about the smaller companies that aren't under the kind of level of scrutiny that these big firms are under? Right. And I think that's a really important point. And I, I'd say that the other point of progress that we should be celebrating is that this information is being tracked. So we didn't have this data a couple of years ago, right? And people still to this day always ask me, where can we get data? Where can we get data? So I think tracking this and being aware is is, is another sign of progress that, that we should be celebrating. Um, the other element which you're asking about, which is big versus small companies, is I think a really important part of this. So Ethan, as you mentioned, um, this data is really reflecting the larger companies where this information is, is oftentimes publicly available, um, where there are bigger numbers, right? But our industry and so many industries is made up of many, many, many smaller and medium-sized firms, many, many firms that are not publicly listed, meaning that this information is not fully available. And, and also that they may not face, that leadership team may not face the same level of expectation or scrutiny around things like ESG or DEI or representation. And that's where I think we've got a big uh, missing piece in our industry. And one of the biggest misconceptions that I've seen is that this question of DEI or culture is a big public company issue or a REIT issue, right? That this is not something that smaller or medium-sized companies, A, need to think about, or B, can afford to do anything about, right? And so that is something that I think we need to change around this, because until we can get to the leadership and the organizations and the cultures of every size company, it's going to be really hard for us as an industry to make really, really meaningful progress. Where will that pressure come from, do you think, if they're not reporting to their shareholders and they don't have a, you know, a big public board? Uh, where does the pressure go on those smaller companies, which make up kind of the ocean of the industry in many ways? It's coming from a couple angles. And that's that's what's going to be really interesting to watch over the next, I would say, even five, five years, five, 10 years. So on the one hand, it's going to be coming from the bottom. And by the bottom, I mean employees. So it's going to be coming from Gen Z, uh, the fact that millennials are stepping into C-suite and decision-making roles, and they, I can tell you, statistically and anecdotally, are much more committed to this work than some of the previous generations. Not to say (laughs) previous generations don't care, but what we're seeing is on on a statistical level, there's just a a more general acceptance that this is something that, that, that they need to think about as a leader. 
in the organization. So A, it's going to come from the employees themselves. It's going to come from the employees that you are interviewing, the employees that are looking at where they want to work, where they want to invest themselves in their career. Because I can tell you right now, as they're comparing, let's say, a commercial real estate, if, if you're, um, let's say, a young a woman of color who's just come out of college and you're you're looking at several different industries, you're going to look at commercial real estate, you're going to look at consulting, you're going to look at tech. Um, the landscape looks very different and you're going to gravitate towards the one where you feel you are going to have the most opportunity. And so if the leadership in the industry doesn't look and feel welcoming to you, you're not going to go there. And that is one source of pressure. The other source of pressure that leaders and organizations aren't going to be able to ignore is the clients and the customers. So we're talking about commercial real estate, and a lot of times we're talking about lenders and landlords and retailers, but the end consumer for every sector is us. Uh, whether we are the office occupiers, whether we are the shoppers in retail assets, whether we are the people moving into the multifamily, right? And we, as people, demographically, are changing rapidly. And we've all heard the, the sort of fun facts about how in the next 20, 30 years, the country, the U.S. will be majority minority. And so the consumer base is very quickly changing. And so that is going to be another source of pressure. And, and, and we as consumers are holding companies more and more accountable to their practices, to their the makeup of their teams. So those are just two sources of pressure that I think are actually pretty big that are that are becoming present. And then a third one that, that's that's really related is, and I saw this working in brokerage, um, while brokerage was not diversifying super rapidly, what we did see, and you can see it in the data that, that, that Ethan showed, is on the capital markets side uh, and on the REIT side, those decision makers were increasingly diverse. And so when we're walking into a room, to pitch ourselves as a vendor, as a partner, those decision makers are asking new questions. They're asking questions about, I want to know the makeup of your team. Who will I be working with? How diverse is that team? I also want to know what your DEI strategy is. What are you doing for sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. So that is another point where it is directly impacting the point of sale. So it's talent and, and the need for business, basically, that's going to put the pressure on. Yeah, basic fundamental business needs. And that's another thing that I advocate is us, we need to shift from DEI or equity or inclusion, any of these buzzwords, shift from it being a quote unquote HR thing or a nice to have to a business critical strategy. Ethan, um, we break down the numbers by industry and in the data this year. Can you give me a sense of which sectors have the most diversity? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, it does dovetail, you know, very much with what uh, Melina was just talking about, right? Um, you know, the most diverse piece of the industry, um, you know, in the sectors that we track are the capital markets, right? Which um, includes banks, you know, includes life insurance companies, uh, and includes mortgage bankers, it includes private equity firms. Most of these companies that we track are public, which means that they have to respond to public shareholders. Uh, most of them at this point, you know, have their own kind of ESG report and DEI plan, and they track, you know, their own diversity internally much more carefully than, you know, the private companies. And I think that sense of accountability, right, kind of spurs progress, right? So 
in these capital markets firms, uh, they, uh, the C-suites there are 18.8% people of color, uh, which is uh, by far the highest um, you know, number in the sector. And that's actually a fairly significant jump from last year when it was 14.9%. Um, you know, women has been kind of fairly static, you know, it's right around 27%. It's been there for the last few years, but the boards, of these companies, you know, uh, have gone from 20% in 2020, the first year we tracked to 24%, 24.6% of people of color. Uh, the boards of these companies in 2021 for women were 30.7%. Now we're 35.8%. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing more progress there among boards, you know, in, in boards as well, um, which I think are a little easier um, to change over. Um, and I want to highlight kind of a, a nuance in these numbers. A lot of that growth in the C-suite for people of color uh, came from a, just a couple firms, uh, which I'll highlight Brookfield and Citigroup. Both of them really expanded their C-suite. So they expanded their executive teams. And in that expansion, they promoted multiple women, multiple people of color um, to those new rules, uh, to those new roles. So you know, rather than waiting for executives to turn over and hoping that they can find you know, diverse replacements, you know, they're expanding the table, right? And you know, with more seats at the table, they're giving more of those seats to people of color and to women. Um, and you know, to, to Melina's point, those are the people in the boardrooms when the brokerage, brokerage firms come, they're seeing these people at the table. So even if, again, they're not replacing, you know, maybe it doesn't boost that percentage so high, that's really not what we care about. We just want more people at the table, right? Um, and so, um, you know, for people who are, who are advocating in, in, in this space, you know, I think that's, that's overall a positive um, that the tables are getting bigger as well. Melina, is that a positive, uh, as Ethan's saying, to, to see more people? I mean, does it matter if it's if the table's getting bigger? No, and I, I actually think that that is a really, really important point that, that I want to highlight, what, what Ethan just said, that we're not replacing seats at the table. We're not kicking people off the table. It's not a zero-sum game. We're expanding the table. We're expanding the perspectives and the viewpoints that we are taking into account when making decisions. And I want to really emphasize that point because there is a misconception. And I talk with a lot of people in the industry, a lot of white male leaders in the industry and people in general. And one of the conversations that, that, that comes up a lot is I feel like DEI or attention to this or attention to driving opportunities for females or people of color could potentially put my career in danger. It puts my opportunities, it lowers my opportunities. And that is a very, very common fear that many people have. And I understand that in the way that we've talked about DEI in the way that, that traditionally we approached it. But what, what we're seeing here, what, what Ethan's highlighted is that that's actually not how a true DEI program and initiative and a focus on inclusion is actually supposed to work. What it's supposed to do is make more seats at the table. It's supposed to create more opportunities. Uh, and in so doing, diversifying the perspectives and the representation that you have there. It's not about replacing. It's not about taking some opportunities away from others. And I think that that example that you mentioned of, of Brookfield, of Citigroup, is exactly what we're going for when we talk about increasing representation. 
Yeah, that's a that's definitely um, <laughs> a talking point that people have said. It's not about taking things away. It's about giving more people more. Um, Melina, when, when we started doing this project back in, in 2020 here at BizNow, you were still um, the head of retail capital markets at CBRE. Uh, now you have your own DEI consultancy firm. Um, how has the industry evolved in, in your eyes um, throughout this time? It's a great question. And I think that the industry has evolved a ton and also very little at the same time, right? And I'll, <laughs> I'll put that into context. I think, um, you know, what has happened is generally, obviously, an awareness of, okay, this is something, this is a topic, these are initiatives that we can't really ignore. And we've seen a lot of the firms, especially the large, large public firms, hiring chief diversity officers, creating new roles, expanding those teams. Uh, creating partnerships, cultivating partnerships with things like Project Destined. ICSC is doing some great work around that, a lot of focus on internships. So tangibly, yes, we've seen a lot of movement happening. And so I think that 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 is a change that I've seen and that I'm very happy about. What One thing that I think hasn't changed, which is not specific to commercial real estate, but I think it happens in, in a lot of industries, but I'm seeing that a lot in commercial real estate, is I still think that we haven't made progress on how we approach DEI, how we think about it. And we haven't done enough work to get everybody on board with it. And by everybody, I mean everybody, men, women, white, people of color. Um, I think we need to really talk about it differently and think about it differently. And as we talked about before, it being a, a business strategy and it being a fundamentally inclusive business strategy where everybody wins. And I know that sounds trite, but it, if you do it right, it's true. And so the area where I think we need to make a lot more progress is we need to start talking about this in different ways and increase the comfort levels. I think there's still way too much discomfort. And I think that that discomfort comes from a lack of, of understanding, of awareness. And, and I don't blame individuals for that. What I think that we haven't done a great job of is equipping everybody with tools, with resources, with knowledge, with understanding, with conversations. And how can we just expect people who have worked in a certain environment in a certain way for 20, 30 years to just get it like that? So that's where I think that, that we are still behind. And I, and, and I think that we could make a lot of progress by doing that. Ethan, talking of discomfort, I mean, I think things have changed a lot on our on the reporting side for us as we've been gathering this data. I remember gathering the data in 2020 when I used to cover brokerage from for the, for the diversity series. It was really difficult to get people to kind of communicate with us and engage with us on this subject. A lot of anxiety about what we were writing and what we were going to say. But have you noticed as you've been kind of gathering this data over the past couple of years, a, a change in how the industry reacts when we when we try and delve into these subjects? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, part of it is that first year, you know, to, as Melina said before, this data did not exist before, right? You know, we were trying to create a data set and, you know, it was kind of in the aftermath of, you know, the summer of 2020 with all the social unrest over, you know, the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, you know, and there was a huge corporate push um, for, to improve their DEI. But I think most of kind of the, the overall push there uh, you know, certainly publicly was was about optics, right? It was it was really like we don't want to be 
seen as the company that doesn't care about this thing that all of a sudden the country cares very deeply about, right? Um, and so I think when we were going to these companies and saying, you know, open your books, right? You know, show us, um, you know, who your leaders are and, you know, more importantly, what do they look like, right? Um, you know, I think uh, that was a really sensitive topic because companies didn't want to to look bad in a time that it was it was really charged. And I think, you know, after doing a few years of this project, you know, you know, certainly the atmosphere over this is a little less, you know, a little less charged. I think companies are a little less worried about getting caught with their pants down, I think. But more importantly, I think companies have plans, they have strategies, right? They have ESG, uh, you know, a lot of them have chief diversity officers now when in 2020, you know, that was almost, uh, you know, a completely novel concept, right? And so, um, you know, there's been, you know, an increasing level of comfort, you know, that being said, there are some companies that in four years have never responded to us, right? You know, we still want to track their data, you know, a, a big piece of kind of how we decided to go about these, uh, you know, selecting these companies is they we feel they're representative of the industry and we don't want um to allow companies that don't participate you know in communicating with us off the hook right you know because then it's it becomes very self-selecting so you know that's continued to be a challenge the companies that won't participate and you know it takes a lot more research and a lot more effort to make sure that their our data is accurate um but again so i mean that's but i think that's par for the course right you know in, in any situation like this you're not going to get 100 percent participation but the companies that have engaged with us you know they've become a lot more comfortable with it you know, uh, you know, we can go back to years of examples of here's how we've done the story. You know, we're not out to get anybody like we're really it's really important that we're just trying to take a snapshot of the industry and trying to provide more information for, you know, the makeup of the leadership of, of this industry, um, you know, which controls trillions of dollars. You know, when you think about I mean, and part of the reason that we wanted to do this is because, you know, you think about a company like Tishman Spire, you think about a company like Brookfield, you think about a company like Blackstone, you think about um you know even private developers you know like alliance residential and the related companies who are all companies that we track combined they own hundreds of thousands of apartments around you know around the country they own tens of millions of square feet of office space you know and and they really influence so much of what happens you know on the street level um you know in in our country so it's important that we know who these companies are, who their leaders are, who is making these decisions that impact all of us you know, on, a, on a really um, you know, base level, you know, where we live, where we work, where we eat, where we shop. These are the companies um, you know, whose leadership hadn't been tracked until we started doing it. Um, so I think now you know, everyone, or you know, I hope everyone sees the value um, you know, in kind of this project and, and everyone's a little more comfortable you know, with kind of our methodology and, you know, the fact that ultimately we're not, you know, we're not out to get anybody. We're really just trying to, you know, inform the public. Melina, what do you think? Do people, are people more comfortable in seeing the stark numbers in black and white? <laughs> I think it's a great question. And I, and I think that fear that Ethan, you mentioned about people being afraid of even having the conversation or being cut out, that there's this general fear, which goes back to what I said before, is we really need to work on that, right? This fear, just as soon as the DEI beast comes up, that you're like, oh gosh, I need to get my PR person in the room before I can talk about this, right? Um, I think that um, it's really interesting. One, one other thing that I would say is hard to get data on is the in-between. So this data is telling us about leadership, which to all of Ethan's point is super important. These are the decision makers. These are the faces of companies. They are controlling so much that happens in real estate, in finance, uh, that affect us as consumers, occupiers, everything. And that's really important. Um, my concern, my fear in general, as we move forward with 
data, companies are getting more comfortable with, okay, yeah, we know the data points we need to work towards and report. And so we're going to focus on that. And and then everything else that we don't have to report that people aren't asking us about, we don't have to pay attention to. So I liken this a lot of times to the sort of data drama around uh, university rankings, right? So with university rankings, there's this very specific set of criteria that go into deciding whether a university is, is, is going to be ranked by U.S. News and World Report, et cetera, et cetera. And then universities will really pander to those data points um, and it, things like you know, how many research papers were published, how many professors won prizes, that kind of thing. But then you're missing things like, are the students happy? Are the classrooms smaller? Are students getting intimate access to their, their professors and, and intellect, and et cetera, et cetera? And I use that example because one of the things that we've seen in commercial real estate is this phenomenon called a, a, a drop to the top. And what that is, is if you look at the data on... Uh, entry-level roles, so junior roles, and you look at the data on senior-level roles, which, Ethan, you're reporting on, there's a big disconnect. And so what we're seeing is an almost 50-50 mix in, in lots of areas of commercial real estate of juniors um, in terms of gender, I would say. Um, but then you get up to the numbers, Ethan, that you talked about, which are 20%, 25% female. And so there's this thing happening uh, in between the bottom and the top, which is women are either being pushed out or they're dropping out and they're saying no. Um, and that doesn't get caught in the data as much because it's so hard to track that. It is very hard to track that. And I think companies that are tracking that would be very <laughs> reticent to share it because of what it shows. And so I think that as we continue to track this data, we also need to push on what the data isn't telling us. Because there's so much under that. And, and these, of course, I acknowledge are harder to track and measure. Um, one thing is, is how inclusive and how included do people feel, right? And the data on, on representation is super important, but it doesn't address that. And so one of the things that I really advocate for, I do this for organizations, but I also tell organizations to do it themselves, is these sorts of sentiment surveys. Ask your people, how do they feel? When they walk in a room, do they feel valued? Do they feel included? Because we're not going to see that in data points. And, and we have to keep pushing on that as, as an important measure of success here. Melina, when we when we spoke last year, we talked about what you termed diversity fatigue. That was the first time I'd, I'd heard the term, you know, the kind of eye glaze that people sometimes get when you walk in to, to discuss mm -hmm. where to talk about diversity. Um, this year, the kind of, the discussion sort of moved further from that into pushback territory, um, almost as far as hostility to mm -hmm. DEI. Um, how much of a worry is that? Do you think, from your perspective? For me, I'm not worried at all, and and <laughs> it's funny because we and we talked about this before. I've actually seen more business, more demand for this work um, because and what what you're referring to is this um, politicization, right? Now there's this political debate. There's ideological debate around DEI. We've seen this at the state level. We're seeing this at the national level, Supreme Court, et cetera. And so there's this now collective, you know, if we were sort of fatigued and feeling uncomfortable, now there's a, well, are, is it going to backfire if we focus on this? Or is this going to backfire on us if we do anything? Are we going to lose funders or partners, et cetera? So we have this added element of, of fear and, and a little bit of conflict around this. Um, what I have noticed in talking with leaders, asking them exactly how they're addressing this, um, 
is that those leaders and organizations that are committed to the fundamentals, which is driving diversity, driving inclusive environments, making sure everybody feels comfortable and thriving, which is the basis, those organizations and leaders who are committed to that are not changing anything. They're not changing the strategy. What may change is how we talk about this. What may change is are the terms that we use, that we assign to the initiatives. And that's what we saw with the Supreme Court case around college admissions is, okay, well, we can't use the term race in these contexts anymore. We have to talk about adversity or discrimination, but we can't talk about X, but it's not changing fundamentally that we're trying to diversify, right? So it creates these little obstacles, but it doesn't change the fundamental mission. It does give organizations and leaders who are not committed to this an excuse to not do anything about it, but that's not going to allow them to escape the pressures that we talked about that are rising and coming from consumers, employees, clients, customers, right? So it doesn't change anything. So for me, from a wide lens, I'm not concerned for one minute because the political debate, the ideological debate can't change the fundamental shift that's happening in demographics and values. That's unaffected. Um, so I actually really welcome this conversation a lot and talking about, you know, how, how do we change things? What do we do? Um, for me, I think I personally have seen an increased demand for doing this work with organizations because there's an awareness that we have to do it differently. You know, if, if, if a lot of organizations, Ethan, to your point, started doing this work in 2020, okay, we're now heading into 2024. So that's about, what, three or four years of having tried some strategies, seen the results, and now stepping back and saying, okay, this has worked, this has not, we need to try something new. And because my approach is all about doing this differently, I have seen an increased demand for that. And so that tells me I think companies and leaders are, are, are serious about this and wanting to see tangible results and are going from what we talked about last year, which is DEI fatigue to, all right, let's do, let's do this differently. There must be some fear, though, from some leaders, even well-intentioned leaders, when we're talking about a group that went to the Supreme Court, successfully got um, race-based admissions overturned and have proceeded to sue two law firms and um, shut down, at least for now, a fund for black female entrepreneurs. I mean, there must be some people who are saying, I'm nervous about my particular diversity program, surely. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And that's where uh, the advice that's been given is, okay, if you have a really well-developed diversity or equity inclusion program, you're doing funds, you're doing anything with the government, which which is definitely affected by some of these Supreme Court cases, um, you need to have a plan, right? So by a plan, I mean, have someone come in, review the policies, review the wording, review the documentation, because you may need to make some adjustments if something changes. Um, just be ready for that pushback, right? Um, but this is a bigger leadership challenge that I think companies are facing in, in what I call a post-2020 workplace. If we look at the conflict right now in Israel, Gaza, Palestine, um, that, look at how that is having a similar impact in how leaders respond, what they say, what they don't say. It's affecting their, people are pulling out of board positions. People are pulling funding and capital. Uh, people are, are blacklisting whole organizations 
for their response or lack of response. So this is something that is is very much a, a challenge for leaders in general in a post-2020 workplace. There's no longer this stark separation that we used to have between work and outside of work, or we don't bring politics into the boardroom. We don't do that. Those lines are gone, right? And so I think that leaders in general need to be prepared um, to, to respond publicly. And that's going to require being really a lot, being really in tune with their values and what they want to stand for, and also being ready to potentially lose some clients, lose some business. But what do you gain in the long term for this too is, is, is a leadership dilemma. I also want to, especially for our industry that we track, right? Commercial real estate, you know, they're dealing with the crisis on their own. I mean, you know, transaction volumes are down 50% this year, you know, all of the major brokerages are doing major cost-cutting initiatives, if not just straight layoffs, right? Um, you know, uh, we cover the equity markets and developers and construction financing is really impossible. And, you know, a lot of developers are laying off people and they're, you know, pausing projects and stuff. So, you know, it gives, you know, to, I think Melinda said this earlier, like that environment could give a lot of companies cover, right? To, to say like, you know, we have to cut costs, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, the business is on solid footing. You know, again, the, the diversity program is not something that we see as like a revenue generator, right? And we're focused on and we're focused on revenue, um, and so I think that's just it's 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 another challenge, leadership challenge, right? You know, to to determine what are our company's values, right? Like, what do we really believe in? Um, and we've seen, you know, in going back to the numbers, like the two parts of the industry I would say are most affected by, you know, the current environment are brokerage and development. And those are the places where progress was the slowest year over year. I mean, there is one fewer person of color in the brokerage C-suite um, uh, this year than there was last year. There are eight fewer women in brokerage C-suites um, than this year than last year. Even the board representation has dipped in brokerage. Um, development as you know, basically flatline, you know, we haven't seen decreases, but we haven't really seen increases while, you know, the REITs and equity capital markets, again, like their leadership, they have different priorities, you know, and, and they've shown that they're not really backsliding, right? They've continued to advance, you know, these programs. So, you know, I think that'll be something really interesting going to next year, um, you know, depending on what happens with the economy is saying like, you know, you know, where, where are these companies values, right? Like who is going to stick to their guns um, and who's going to say, you know, you're not making money. And that's the thing that's, you know, the only thing that's important to us right now. I know this is, you know, hard to kind of quantify, but Melina, give us a sense of like, you feel optimistic about where things are going. I mean, this is your life's work. Um, do you feel good about what you hear and what you see? Putting aside everything we've just discussed. I do. And I'll give you an anecdote as to why I do. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was with a group of young leaders. And by young leaders, I mean these are these are leaders under the age of 40. They're considered next gen in commercial real estate. Um, they are the rising stars that within the next five years or so will be in the C-suite roles. I was leading a conversation with them about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the future of it in our industry. And that conversation was the most passionate, the most impassioned, the most hopeful that I have ever had with an industry group. One of the questions that I asked them in a survey, an anonymous survey, before we stepped into the room was when I see the term DEI, when I hear the term DEI, I feel X. And I gave them 
about you know 20 different emotions from confused to hopeful to excited. Um, and I and I allowed them to, to write in if they had something as well. And they can pick as many as, as are applicable. And I asked that question in pretty much every survey I ever do for groups, for companies, for clients. And their responses were really different than any other survey I've run in that they were super positive. It was hopeful. It was optimistic. You know, there was some there was some concern, right? Concern or, or fatigue around it not working. But the biggest word was hopeful. And when I got them in the room and we talked about it, the passion with which these leaders were talking about wanting to do things, about needing to do things differently, talking openly about experiences they've had, and especially the women and the people of color in the room who were voicing their experiences and the diversity was in the room, I walked away from there feeling like, yes, we are going in a great direction. We are going to be in much better hands over the next five to 10 years. So that speaks again to the fundamental trend that I talked about earlier, which is we can we can change the wording, we can change the conflicts, we can change the pressures on leaders, but we're not going to change the fact that the people in the room are changing. And that change brings decision changes, strategy changes, and and that is why I'm hopeful and and genuinely optimistic and why I'm still here. <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on, Ethan, unless like you wanted to add anything else. Uh, I mean, I just want to say that, um, you know, it, I, you know, edited the project and, you know, I'm kind of, you know, at the at the tip of the spear here. But the, the real hard work of compiling the data was done by an amazing team of BizNow reporters who I would like to name check here, if that's OK. Uh, Matt Vajalevsky, Emily Wishingrad, Olivia Lukemeyer and Bianca Baragan. Uh, you know, these four reporters have worked for months collecting this data, refining the data making sure it's accurate, interviewing experts, you know, writing the, the story that you'll see on our website, biznow.com, uh, when, when you go there. Um, and, you know, I could not be more proud of being on a team and with a, with a, with a company that, you know, actually devotes the resources and the time to, to tracking, you know, this issue, um, especially, you know, going on four years now. Well, I, I mean, I would like to thank you all for this as well. This is a really, really important initiative that you all took on. It is not an easy one. And I applaud the perseverance that you've had, um, the work that you're doing, not just in publishing numbers, but trying to understand what's going on behind the numbers, what the numbers don't tell us, what the numbers do tell us. This is such an important initiative for, for this industry. And I'm, I'm really happy you all are spearheading it and, and doing great work around it. That makes us very happy to hear. Thank you to Melina Cordero and Ethan Rothstein. You can read the full series on the website at biznow.com. And this sadly is the last episode of BizNow Reports. I started this interview series in March of 2020 and what began as a pandemic project that gave me comfort and joy in those really difficult times has now run for over three and a half years and well over a hundred episodes. I'm so grateful to everyone who's come on the show and who has supported it, particularly my editor, Ethan Rothstein, who's listened to it on so many Sundays. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.